You might wonder, uh, how, does, how does the story of the Good Samaritan fit into Winsome Witness? Well, my next sermon in this series was actually going to be fairly heavy, and I thought, we're doing this outside service, it's going to be light, and so I'm going to bump that up a Sunday or two. And uh, so I wanted to do something a little, little lighter, but uh, in my mind, this fits. I, I, I hate it, but the truth of the matter is, that Jesus cares a whole lot more about our attitudes and values than our actions. And, and being a witness isn't something you turn on and off. Being a good Samaritan isn't something you turn on and off or that you do on Sunday but not the rest of the week. And so we're going to look at this story and uh, some of you will remember that, and I don't remember how many years ago, but I preached about the good Samaritan in this church and some of this I stole from myself. And uh, I think that's fair if you steal from yourself. Uh, our, story, our story starts with a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? There's the big question. And yeah, it sounds like it was meant to be a little bit of a trap, but there's the question. And probably many of us have over, whether we were little children or older, have agonized over that question. What do I need to do to get into God's good books? Or what do I have to do to get my name written in his book? What do I got to do? And, and so what he's really asking is, what must I do to get in? What's the cost of admission? What do, what do I got to do to get in? What's the price tag? And, and when does God expect me to take responsibility for the needs of others? That's kind of hidden in this story. When does God expect me to take responsibility for the needs of others? And in, in my digital world without borders which happens to be yours as well, the big question is, who is my neighbor? <laughs> Probably, it, I mean, maybe you haven't, all, you haven't all lived internationally, but I, can, Adam, I could have an email or a WhatsApp in the next five minutes from somebody in Nicaragua or in Guadalajara asking for help. Like, this world has become very small. So, so what's my responsibility? And who is my neighbor? It's, it's a pretty complicated question. And it looks like Jesus sidesteps that question entirely and answers this man by telling him what someone on the inside looks like. Not, this is what you have to do to get in, but this is what someone on the inside looks like. And what Jesus is doing here is he's showing the difference between works and fruit. Okay, uh, Works has the idea of doing something to get in. By the way, the thief on the cross did not have a chance to do any good works. He never had a chance. He did not do one solitary thing to tip the scales in his favor. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Fruit, however, what you do is the result of who you are on the inside. Now, I've got to tell you a little story because it just happened to me this afternoon. I got rear-ended for the second time since I've come home from Guadalajara. Surprised me a little bit. My neck was already sore from whatever, earlier in the week. And I was really nice to the young man. I took a picture of his drivers, of the license plate, and I said, that doesn't look like a lot of damage on my beater, so unless there's sway bars bent and everything else, you probably won't hear from me. I thought I was very nice. I let him off really nicely. I know you're not supposed to be proud of yourself, and we should be humble, but I'm proud of my humility. 
Okay? You already know that driving is a bit of a challenge for me. You know that. This is confession time here. And so when I, when I get it right, I actually have to remind myself, you did, you, did, you did good. It's not something you turn on and off. Fruit is the result of who you are on the inside. And the Jews, as we see in our passage here, they split hairs over the question about neighbors by excluding Gentiles and Samaritans from being their neighbor. They're, they're, just, they're not my neighbor. And here was this lawkeeper's loophole. A neighbor is someone that is close to you, but the Jews made racial exceptions so that those that were not of their religion or ethnicity were not considered neighbors. Now, before you kind of point your nose at them and snub your nose at them and say, we're not like that, hmm, the attitude being dealt with in this parable is the attitude of self-righteousness. And i got to ask myself, are there people that I treat as if they were not my neighbor? God actually expects us to take the initiative to cross boundaries, to overcome barriers, to show mercy to others. And how you and I respond to the needs of others determines who you love the most. If you love God first, you will live other-focused. You'll think of others. So let's look at this priest and Levite in our passage. Mo already told you that, well, we know what a priest does. He's the go-between between, between God and you. He's that intermediary speaking to you for God and vice versa. And the Levite is, like Mo said, kind of a, a worship leader. So these are religious folk. And, and in our story, they're more concerned about personal defilement than anything else. Of course, you need to understand that for them to go to a man who is wounded and potentially dying would mean they were defiled. And then they couldn't actually serve in the temple. Now, to put it into your context, if I had tested positive for COVID this afternoon, that would make this moment fairly difficult for me. You'd catch my drift. Some of you have had to stay away from work for a week during these last two years because you tested positive. It completely wrecked your schedule. It wrecked a lot of things. Maybe you ended up without pay for a week or two. So for, for the priest and Levite, there were significant consequences. We have to recognize there were consequences. This was more than just a potential inconvenience that actually implied sacrifice on their part. And I wonder how often our approach to others around us mirrors their attitude and their response. Fear, embarrassment, helplessness, all conspire to make us pass by on the other side. Excuses. Excuses. Excuses are like belly buttons. We all have one. That was safe, eh? Is that okay? I hope. No doubt they were in a hurry to do God's work. They had their priorities, yet they neglected the heart of what God wanted from his followers. Love God and love your neighbor. Love both. The philosophy of life on the Jericho Road, exhibited by both the priest and Levite, is a philosophy that is passive in regard to the needs of others. And we've all heard the saying, I'm looking out for number one. I don't know how many times, as prophet SBC and elsewhere, I have heard 
someone yell, I call shotgun. Some of you have heard that. What that means is, I get to sit in the passenger seat because I spoke first, that's for me. In other words, this is about me. Okay? That's, that's, I'm going to say that's actually a fairly selfish statement. I call shotgun is a bit of a selfish statement. It's saying, this is where I want to sit. The rest of you peons can sit in the trunk. Well, maybe not quite that bad. But that's, that's, that's the sentiment of looking out for number one. And the Samaritan, when Jesus tells this story, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of anger because the Samaritan for the Jews was a dog. He was just not worthy of attention. And to suggest that the Samaritan was better than the Jew, and not only that, that he was better than the priest and the Levite, this was an unacceptable comparison for them. The Samaritans were scorned by the Jews because they were half-breeds. They weren't ethnically pure. I wonder, and here I'm going to bring it home, I wonder if our attitude to the alcoholic, the drug addict, the homeless, mirrors the Jewish attitude to the Samaritans. Do, do we have people in our lives, or people that we run into, or people that live across the street, or whatever, are there people that we come across where consciously or subconsciously in our minds, we have put them into a box, and maybe over there? Do we also exclude people for different reasons? By the way, if you depersonalize someone, that helps you to justify ignoring them and not responding to their needs. They say that that's how people actually are able to torture someone else by depersonalizing them. Because it's very difficult to torture another human being. If you depersonalize them, you can. And I wonder if this is a similar attitude. This Samaritan... He could have had his excuses just like the priest and Levite. He was likely traveling on business. He could have had logical excuses as well. But he understood that his own agenda, where he was going and what he wanted to do, had to give way to an act of mercy like this. And by stopping and helping this wounded traveler, he was also placing his own safety at risk. What the Samaritan did here helps us to understand what it means to show mercy show mercy. He identifies with the needs of the stranger and he has compassion on him. There's actually no logical reason why he should rearrange his plans and spend his money just to help an enemy in need. But mercy actually doesn't need reasons. The Samaritan shows no racial prejudice, no prejudice about social rank, no religious prejudice. He treated the wounded traveler like an image bearer. And dare I say, like an equal. Like that saying, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no one that is outside of God's love and mercy and grace. He cares about each one of us. No doubt the priest and the Levite had their excuses. The Samaritan saw him, information. He took pity on him, compassion. And then he went to him, action. And so I'm going to give you a formula. Proximity or opportunity plus urgency plus capacity or 
the ability equals responsibility. So if you have proximity and there is urgency and you have the capacity, you add those three together and you have responsibility. So if you can help, it's urgent and you're close enough, responsibility. Now, I also want to be fair and recognize that there are many potential exits or off-ramps that we can take to avoid taking action. You know what an off-ramp is, to get off the freeway. There's lots of nice off-ramps, like this one. It's called intention. Well, at least I thought about doing something. I had good intentions. Or deflection. You know, somebody else really ought to step in here. Rationalization. Oh, I probably couldn't manage this anyway. Justification. I have my reasons. These are all great off-ramps. They're great exits so that you don't have to actually step up and respond to the need. So what do we do with this passage? And Jesus is putting his finger in the wound of upsetting our comfortable, controlled life with situations that come along. I dare say that we study Scripture in order to have it change and shape us. So where does this touch me? I, I think that the goal of studying Scripture is to have your life changed, not to satisfy intellectual curiosity. Actually, I've done this, I don't know how many years in a row of reading the Bible through in a year. And I did it like X number of the same one. And then I changed to a different style, a chronological Bible. But at a certain point, I was just trying to read to make sure I didn't fall behind. Well, how much is it changing me if that's the way I'm doing it? So then I change it up again. So the way I'm wired, I have to change up constantly the way I'm doing things so that I don't fall into just a legalistic habit where I'm not actually plugged in the way I need to be. So we study Scripture to have it change us. And this passage, boy, it sure, it sure hits us. It should impact our homes. It should alter how we do business. It should influence our relationships. It should transform us. You and I might read this story and think of the high cost of caring, but actually it's far more costly not to care. You see, I would have felt really badly if I had torn a strip out of the young man that rear-ended me this afternoon. And by God's grace, I handled it right, and I actually felt pretty good about myself as I drove away. Compassion, mercy... It has its dividends. The expert of the law here in our text asked the wrong question. He should have asked, to whom can I be a neighbor? To whom can I be a neighbor? To whom can I show God's love? Only that kind of attitude can fulfill the commandment of love. There is actually no conflict between love for God and love for neighbor. That's why it's summed up as the great commandment. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. There's no conflict between those two. They go together. 
The story of the Good Samaritan teaches some great lessons to law keepers and legalists, and I count myself as one of those. That would be my tendency. And we sometimes wrongly believe that we can earn eternal life by doing good works. doesn't work. And it may be easier to have a religion of convenience to avoid involvement and responsibility. But we all have a duty to everyone else, regardless of their ethnicity, their social or economic status, their education, or any other considerations that constitute a bias. Ethical behavior is more than avoiding bad behavior. God doesn't only ask, have you harmed someone today? He also goes past that and says, who have you served today? That's a different question. Have you loved your neighbor today? Sins of omission are sins nonetheless, just like a sin of commission. We might have a tendency to love only those already within our circle, our circle. And then rationalize not loving or even hating or rejecting those that are outside our circle. And I, I guess it feels good to have a circle, and I think of this family as a circle. We, we're a family after all. But when that affirmation of the family that holds us in also keeps others out, then we've misunderstood what it means to be part of a family. In, in terms of cultural anthropology, ethnocentrism is the glue that keeps a society working. See, we all agree to drive when it's green and to stop when it's red. And it works if we all follow those rules. But if you go to England and you drive on the right side of the road, you're going to get in trouble because they actually have agreed to drive on the other side. See? And, and so ethnocentrism is agreeing to a certain set of beliefs and rules. But then sometimes what happens is that those that are not on our page, those we exclude, we ostracize, we don't treat them like neighbors. And we, we need to love them all. Supposedly, the priest and Levite belonged to a tribe that was supposed to do good. They were the ones expected to show kindness. But when they were given the opportunity to do good, they turned their back. Too much at stake. Can't do it. And Christians, those of us who intend to be Christ-like, we are the ones that the world expects to be interested in the well-being of others. The world expects that of us. I read a quote the other day. It said, The greatest cause of atheism is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So when we talk about evangelism, we talk about witnessing, and we're talking about winsome witness, um, it's, it's not just what I say. It's how I behave that actually has a lot of power to it. Do you notice that as you read the New Testament, Jesus never talked to a prostitute. That's because he never saw a prostitute. What he saw was someone he loved, and someone created the image of God. You see what I'm saying? He saw every single human being as an image bearer worthy of God's love. I still get a chuckle out of... Uh, what happened when we came home on furlough once and Mike and Chris were small 
And Christopher was sitting on Uncle Teddy's lap, and he was, uh, he had married into the family, I think from Trinidad, Tobago. No? Okay. Anyway, Guyana. He, anyway, he was very, very dark. And Christopher, little kid, sitting on his lap, says, Teddy, why are you so black? As an innocent child. And Teddy said, well, aren't your friends in Chihuahua dark? Christopher's no. So he got up with Christopher, walked over to the fridge, and here's a picture of Christopher with Mariano, the neighbor boy, sitting in, it's called a burla perro, a dog teaser. It's a metal basket this high off the street so that you can put your garbage in it and the dogs can't get at your garbage, right? They're both sitting in this burla perro. That's the picture. And Mariano is quite dark. And Teddy points to him and says, see, he's dark. And I almost get emotional. Christopher, with the innocence of a child, says, no, he's not. He's white like me. And suddenly the dime dropped for me. When you have a relationship with someone, you don't see color. Huh? Chew on that for a bit. When you have a relationship with someone, you don't see economic status. You don't see ethnicity. You, you don't see, you don't have all of those barriers and filters. Because you have a relationship with someone, you see them as a person. Wow, that was a wonderful lesson. And he wasn't lying. He was being as truthful as he could. So what are we going to do this week? Will you covenant with God to try and live a life of compassion and mercy in this coming week? I know we're only Thursday, so this goes 10 days. Got to work at this for 10 days. A life of compassion and mercy. Will you agree with Jesus to be his hands and feet to all you come in contact with in this next 10 days? Be his hands and feet. And, and you won't get the list ahead of time. It might be somebody bumping into you from the back. Like, you, you don't get advance warning. It... Will you agree to stop excuses in their tracks, refusing to allow religious, racial, social, or other prejudices or biases keep you from allowing the love of Christ to work through you, no matter the cost? See every single person as worthy of God's love as an image bearer. You and I have been given an amazing opportunity to represent. We get to represent. We get to represent Christ. As we determine in our hearts and are directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can be good Samaritans to those around us. We can do it. If we decide to, and then also ask God by his Holy Spirit to direct us and empower us. And then we can be good Samaritans. And I think that as we do that, we will be winsome witnesses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing faithfulness, your love, your compassion, your mercy. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, we want the heart of Christ to be our own. We want the passion of Christ to be our own. We want the life of the Good Samaritan, the life of Jesus, to be reflected in our own lives. 
We don't know what will come our way in the coming days, in the coming weeks, but we know that we will have opportunities. So, Father, we ask that you would remind us and that you would help us to respond in ways that would be winsome, in ways that would reflect to you, reflect you to a world that needs you desperately. Thank you for what you have done and are doing. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I'm not sure if... Uh, I, I think we have a couple of mics. We won't do the, uh, the call-in today because we're not live stream. But if some of you have questions or comments or you want to uh, speak to this, uh, there, there's a mic here. I think Diane has one there. Do you want to go with that one, Diane? And does anybody want to... Okay. Anyone want to speak, uh, have a question or a comment? Caught you off guard. Okay. Uh, Earl... Uh, earlier on in the sermon, you said something to the effect of God cares more about your uh, beliefs and attitudes and values attitudes and values than he does about your works. Can you unpack that a little bit? In the light of, I'm, I just immediately went, yeah. okay, yes, but faith without works is dead. Yeah. One proves the other, so to speak. So, yeah. let, let me use this illustration. Um, I believe that there are times where we get the idea that we have to manage how we behave. And, and that's only half true. Sometimes trying to manage how you behave is like standing with a sieve at the end of a sewer pipe trying to clean what comes out of the pipe. And it's a thankless job, and it's never-ending. It actually doesn't actually bear fruit. What would would be to fix the source, and then this would almost look after itself. So what I'm trying to say is that actually we have to go deeper instead of just, just trying to work with fixing my behavior. I have to go deeper. God does surgery of the heart. I have to change my attitudes and my values, and then my actions, just like fruit... An apple is the fruit of an apple tree. My actions then are the fruit of my changed attitudes and values. And that's harder, but it's actually, I think, the right process. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, so when I look at the Sermon on the Mount, when I look at other teaching in Scripture, I, I see this emphasis on you, you, can't, you can't just fix the externals without fixing the heart of the matter. Uh, and, and I've grown up with this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And I always thought, if I, if I keep away from these things, then I'm good. But it did nothing to fix my attitudes and values, right? Uh, so that's where I'm coming from. Yep. I should have just hung up onto the mic for, for uh, follow-ups. Um, but there's also this, like, counterpoint, I guess, where I've heard it, numerous times living in this sort of Christian circle where someone will say, well, what, what's your position on, insert controversial issue, what's your position on homosexuality? 
and they say that as if that's more important than mm. how you treat your gay friend or something like right. that. So where's like there must be some push and pull to this as well. See, I I I don't I don't like the idea of of uh, pigeonholing like systematic theology. What's your position on this and position on this and position on this? I think the guiding principle is that we are all created in the image of God and God cares about everyone and loves everyone so now how do I love this person and 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 we sometimes I think have thought that how do I how do I love the sinner but not condone the sin and I'm not suggesting that loving the sinner means condoning the sin but that doesn't absolve us of the need of treat, treating everyone like an image bearer that God loves and that God wants to redeem. Um, I, I, I guess I'm reacting. I hope I'm not reacting as much as Luther did to the book of James. Uh, but maybe I'm reacting a little bit to feeling, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. I, I gladly take correction. But feeling like, I have spent maybe too much of my life worrying about squeaky clean behavior and not enough emphasis in my life in winning the lost. And at this point where the, uh, the sand on the scales in my life, uh, the pile is greater on one side than the other, given where I am, I'm, I'm actually becoming more concerned about how do I, how do I win the lost? And... and and I think that that lines up with what Jesus did. He wasn't quite as, as concerned as we are about optics and about who sees me here or this or that. He was accused of, of eating with publicans and sinners and um, hobnobbing with people that everybody else thought weren't worth the light of day. So I, I'm, that doesn't mean that now you slide off the saddle and throw ethics and morality out the window. That's not, that he didn't do either. What I am saying is that if all I'm concerned about is staying squeaky clean and I don't fulfill that mandate to be a witness to others, then actually I haven't gained. That's what I'm saying. I hope that's, that's where I'm at. I'm not saying that's where everybody's at. This, this story that, that we hear here about the, the Samaritan is, is something where these individuals had good meaning. They were religious leaders, but they were legalists. So they just did not want to get involved in this because they had this, re, this way of being, their belief of being how they are a believer. And I don't want to stain my Christian walk with, oh, this individual so that is something that we as believers, I personally, that is something I struggle with. Yeah. Because that's my, you know, in with my Christian walk, because the devil knows he doesn't have us. We're born again believers. So then he works on us to try and defeat us through that way. And the world looks at, you know, how you shared there, Ernie, tremendous. Yeah, very much a blessing. And we can really learn through that. I'm a six on the Enneagram which also means that I'm a list person. So I have a natural penchant tendency to be a legalist. Just give me the list. I'll, I would like to be able to tell Diane, just give me the list of four things I need to do today to be in your good books. 
And, and I feel a little bit like it's like Mary and Martha, where Martha was busy doing all kinds of good stuff, and Mary was sitting at his feet, and Jesus said, sorry, Martha, what Mary's doing won't be taken from her. Because actually, he probably wants both, but this is important. So, so yeah, I, I think... I think as long as we are assured of being redeemed and justified and in the process of being sanctified, we can take our witness into the world and you may have to at times wear high-top boots. It might get messy, but that's a risk. It's also a risk to stay huddled in the shed singing Kumbaya. Because you won't reach anyone there. 